1: And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry?
0: Welcome to the History of England, episode 284, Popular Culture in the Ritual Year. Last time we talked about the all-important little commonwealth, the household. Now it strikes me that we have talked rather a lot about work and difficult stuff and functional get up, work, go to bed, get up, go to work, mm, die, you know, that sort of stuff. But there has been something lacking in this story, therefore. There has been a definite absence of F-U-N, fun. Was there any, is the question. Or were you essentially just fulfilling your biological function and then waiting for death? The short answer, of course, is that there was loads of fun and laughter in the late Middle Ages and early modern England, if you didn't have to be dying of plague at the time. To be a little more poe-faced about it, What we are talking about here today is an aspect of popular culture, the sort of things folks got up to in the parish around the ritual year and how that changed up to the start of Elizabethan days. The very phrase popular culture is of course a bit of a tricky one. What is popular culture against any other kind of culture? I now feel required therefore to give you a definition. I am sorry for this, because in common with most sensible English people, I am well aware that in definition and clarity lies chaos, despair and murder. But I feel an uncontrollable urge to break a rule of a lifetime. It is not my definition of popular culture, I must say. To make that up on my own would be hubris of the highest order, especially when there is a veritable smorgasbord of definitions lying around available on the historian's shelf of meaning. The one I have selected belongs to a chap called Peter Burke. Peter Burke defined culture as a system of shared meanings, attitudes and values and the symbolic forms, performances and artefacts in which they are expressed or embodied. A system of shared meanings, attitudes and values and the symbolic forms, performances and artefacts in which they are expressed or embodied. Has that helped Probably not, but essentially we are talking about a very wide range of activities, events, objects, images and so on, which everyone would at least understand and recognise and interpret in a similar way, because they were based on values they all understand and broadly accept. It's worth noting that those values might be expressed in very different ways in different circumstances, or so it seems to me. This is important, I think, for the idea we will come to that elite and popular culture begin to become separated in our period. The poor could not take any part in buying picture or art. For example, they didn't have the cash in those days, but the idea of status and religious belief in a viciously expensive painting of a civic dignitary, for example, would convey messages that were entirely comprehensible to both rich and poor, even though the poor weren't actively involved in creating that kind of art. And furthermore, the message in the picture, would be generally accepted by all, however irritating they might find it. Though, of course, in the universally comprehensible cultural activities list, we would, of course, need to exclude opera and cucumbers. Just joking about cucumbers. I'll oh, go on then, and opera, before you all write in and get cross with me. Anyway, there is a historical debate in all of this, as it happens, of which I should make you aware. The general story, the big picture is of a rise in the frequency of church and village festivals in the late Middle Ages, as the economy delivered a greater individual prosperity to its inhabitants at a time of low or indeed no population growth. Historians such as Ronald Hutton developed and catalogue the growth and richness of these festivals. He had expected to find festivals that were rooted in old and possibly even pagan tradition but was surprised to find that actually many originated in the 15th century itself which is a bit disappointing in a way I suppose for the idea of age-old ancient folklore but it does re-emphasise the strength of village life and indeed church life in the late medieval period. And then the story goes as the 16th century advanced the tapestry of parish life becomes increasingly threadbare, festivals are closed down or even stopped. The cause was those horrid Protestants' miserable lot, and especially the hotter type of Protestant. Essentially, during the reign of Elizabeth, it becomes clearer that there were many in the Reformed Church that felt religious reform had not gone far enough, and they sought to push the church further. They often described themselves as the godly. Others would describe them with rather less enthusiasm and we've come to describe them these days as Puritans. The Puritans began to become associated with the Reformation of Manners. Now the Reformation of Manners is not restricted to minding your P's and Q's, although minding your P's and Q's is indeed a thing for Puritans. The Reformation of Manners is not restricted to things like holding your fork in your left hand. The Reformation of Manners is about manners in the wider sense of how you live your life. So the idea is that after the English Reformation, lemon-sucking takes over and festivals all die out, leaving a dull grey parish replete with nothing but tumbleweed. I exaggerate for effect. I exaggerate quite a lot for effect, actually. Oh, and this movement culminated, of course, in the widely known and most infamous Puritan of them all, Oliver Cromwell, who, of course, as you know, cancelled Christmas. Except of course Oliver Cromwell did no such thing. It was Parliament in 1644 and 1647 that banned Christmas. Just in case you are not aware and somebody says it, you can now put them right. Gently and with restraint and understanding, but firmly. Well, as we will see, there is no doubt something happens. And as we will see, There is something of a dieback in festivals. There is an increased focus on controlling behaviour of the village inhabitants, and especially many of these festivals which could be undeniably raucous and, in the English tradition, fuelled by alcohol. But there are other views available on why. Other views which suggest that Catholics might be every bit as horrid as Protestants. Or, to put it another way, that there are other reasons why change occurs, which has much less to do with just religion than we might think the leading contender in these alternative theories is population change and the economic and social distress that came with it. That with a wave of vagrants, an explosion in the crime rate, with widespread poverty, there was a reaction to control excess against the background of a fear that things could be getting out of hand and society was in danger. It's been proposed also that this fear had a class aspect – that economic change created greater divisions between groups in society. And as we have seen already, economic change did indeed have very different impacts on those with land and those without. So the idea is that under the pressure of population growth, the rise of vagrancy and the seemingly endless stream of the poor, the attitude towards the poor by the better off members of the parish tends to change to one of fear. And with fear came denigration where once the language of poor relief is one where the poor are closer to God because of their poverty, now a new language begins to appear and social elites begin to describe the poor with words such as rustics or rude or silly ignorance. It is also argued that these differences drove an increasing wedge between popular culture and elite culture. Some historians, such as Barry Ray, saw popular culture in terms of resistance to authority that popular activities were what he called weapons of the weak. So festivals and local events presented a fantastic opportunity for the poorer members of the parish to express themselves and to express their own defiance to the increasing condescension of the better off. We talked about this a bit in connection with the parish last time, about how resistance might be expressed by working slowly or poorly or expressed more directly in mockery of the haves in authority. I mentioned the kind of rhymes that could be used in Skimmingtons and Rough Rides last time. Those sort of poems could find themselves pinned to the gate of a knight's manor, mocking those in power who might have been caught with his pants down or the subject of a spot of cockaldry. So the idea that festivals begin to get closed down might be seen as part of that growing divide in society between the haves and the haves-not. Social elites, of course, do not like being mocked and defied. And the temptation, therefore, was for social elites to control, manage popular celebrations or indeed snuff them out. So hence, the idea that popular culture changes as economic and social differences grow or indeed become banished or controlled. There are counterclaims to all of this, of course. The historian Keith Wrightson argued that even well into Elizabeth's reign, English parishes shared a set of common cultures and beliefs which were shared across different groups. There was no great social-cultural divide. But he also claimed that by the mid-17th century, this had indeed changed and that there was much more polarisation between the elite and the poorer members of the parish. And this was the culmination of a general social trend that started in the early 16th century. Plus, there's a very fine historian called Martin Ingram who argues that the idea of shared value survives much longer than that, much longer. He looked at the tradition of the Charivari or the Skimmington that we heard about last week and he traced the approval and involvement of social elites in those activities all the way through to the 18th century. The answer, as in all these things, is probably that it's messy and that the process plays out in different ways and speeds depending on where you are or the specific ceremony and event concerned. But what's probably inarguable is that greater separation between social groups is on the way. You can present that story positively or negatively, actually. You'd probably say both. So you could say that, ah... The better-off peasants' humanry and husbandmen, they identify much more closely with the gentry and nobility. They are able to share in the management of both parish and state, in fact. Or you can emphasise the negative and point out that the better-off peasant deserts their poorer neighbours. And so the poor of the parish lose the support of those who had so often been the leaders and supporters of the poor in protests such as enclosure riots or the commotion time of 1549. Anyway, in what follows, we'll certainly see change. And as part of that, many festivals do get lost. But we'll also see that much of that change comes from bottom up as well as top down, that popular culture had plenty of vitality and ability to reinvent itself. And this is a theme that will stay with us as we work our way through the reign of Elizabeth. But what we can do now, at very least, in this episode now, is to understand a little bit about village pastimes before the Reformation and what happened in its immediate wake. And understand if the Reformation of Manners really was a phenomenon of the Protestant Reformation or more, the renewal and continuation of existing themes that were there already. And at some point, ladies and gentlemen, we will then need to take you to the bawdy courts. As part of that, we'll go to Winchester and meet the lights of Aunt Agnes Haycroft and Frideswid Hodgson, fine, upstanding good wives of that fine and upstanding city. But we'll do that next week. So you have to be patient for that one. But this week, though, let us start with a bit of a romp if podcasters are able to romp through the world of English festivities and pastimes, starting off with the ritual year. And since we've got through many minutes of podcasts without a warning, let us issue the card of regionalism and note that one of the glories of the medieval and early modern world is the plethora of local customs and rituals. Let us take the blessing of the rush harvest as an example. The rush was an important resource for floor covering in particular and so was worthy of a spot of congratulation, of course, for a job well done. But this congratulation was offered only in the north-west and in Derbyshire, so it's a bit of a regional thing. I might anachronistically make the same point with regard to some of the utterly bizarre regional customs that continue today in rare and exclusive locations. On Shrove Tuesday every year in the town of Atherston in Warwickshire, there is a genuinely terrifying two-hour struggle for possession of a big ball. A ceremony thought to celebrate a similar match in 11.99 between Warwickshire and Leicestershire. That original match was obviously fixed as it happens. And we know this because Leicestershire lost, which obviously couldn't have happened. I mean, yeah, right. Anyway, have a look on YouTube the Atherston ball game and then come back to me, look me in the eye and tell me that you would not immediately join the ranks of the godly and start reforming manners at a canter. Rather less confrontational of surviving traditions is the traditional cheese rolling at Brockworth Gloucestershire although the frankly suicidal nature of the event has led to strenuous attempts to have it banned and it survives on an unofficial basis. One of my favourite quotes of the day comes from Wikipedia, so I hope it is accurate, but it's from a former winner of the cheese rolling, Helen, who defiantly proclaimed, No one's going to stop us doing it. They say it's not official, but we're all Brockworth people, and we're running the cheese today. So it is official. What a great expression, running the cheese. I, of course, strongly approve, and in their honour, I shall be running the cheese tonight. I shall only be running it across my table towards a cracker and onion marmalade, but nonetheless it will be running in Brockworth's honour. Quite a few of these regional events happen still, though of course a fraction of what used to occur, and some of them are probably the old relic of celebrations that might once have been quite general across the country. One example of those is the hocktide celebration that survives at just Hungerford and used to be much more general, so Coventry, used to have a Hock Tuesday play on the second Tuesday after Easter. This was based on another widespread custom that women would raise money for the church by capturing men and holding them ransom for a fee. This followed Hock Monday when men captured women for ransom. So, warning about regionalism delivered, we should start our romp through festivals at Christmas, I guess, a 12-day ceremony rather different from the modern idiom. I would guess this is the sort of thing that comes up on the interweb quite often, and I'm sure we've discussed wassailing before, so I will be brief. Advent was actually a time of fasting with no cheese, rolling or otherwise, meat or eggs. Since the 12 days of Christmas were launched, the celebrations didn't carry on at the same high level all the way through. There were peaks and there were troughs. Some of those days and events might be an occasion for the grander gentry to fling open their doors to their tenants but Christmas was not necessarily an opportunity for inter-class celebration. New Year's Day was not in fact the start of the new year. The new year started, as everyone knows, on the 25th of March, the Feast of the Annunciation. The 1st of January was a Roman tradition, but it was most relevant here because it was the main day for gift-giving. Now, gift-giving at the top of society was often a subtle and nuanced process of lordship and subordination – A question of choosing the right level of gift for your lord, for example. Not too extravagant, or they'd bang up the rent or mark you as a parvenu. Not too little, they'd think of you as a nobody. Lords could reject the gift too. So, in 1571, Elizabeth would refuse a gift from the Duke of Norfolk, and from that moment, Norfolk knew he was heading toastwards. Lords would go through similar agonies when choosing presents for their tenants. Important not to overdo it. Important Not to be too stingy, unless you had a message to convey, of course. Further down the social scale, we could all just have a good time, so that was okay. Then the biggest feast of the year was Twelfth Night, and at court everyone went potty with display and dancing and so on. It was not simply an occasion to rather gloomily take the decorations down for another year and turn to face the mist and snow of January and start counting down the 355 days to Christmas. One of the more intriguing rituals over Christmas were inversion-type ceremonies. And inversion ceremonies are something of a theme. You might think of them as a way of letting everyone escape the normal rules of hierarchy and behaviour for a while before replacing the head in the noose the following morning. Anyway, one of these at Christmas was relatively controlled. The tradition of the boy bishop. A boy from the choir would be chosen to be bishop and in some way to lead the community for a short period or even a procession, something like that. Much more raucous and widespread was the Lord of Misrule, somebody appointed to lead and organise the celebrations. This was generally done in as wild and rowdy a manner as possible, that being their role. Henry VIII loved these things and played them with gusto, and interestingly, so did Edward VI. Oddly, Mary was less keen, and all of that is kind of bucking the normal trend of festivals, because generally speaking, in line with what we said earlier, the profile is of the fun and festivities coming under pressure during Henry's reign, being really squeezed under the Protestant Reformation of Edward, enjoying something of a revival under Mary, and then gradually residing under Elizabeth over quite a long time. There are many exceptions, but that's that sort of handy rule of thumb. Though alongside this was also the arrival of secular, national and patriotic ceremonies such as the celebration of the coronation of Elizabeth, the bonfire night from 1605. The boy bishop, for example, was banned by Henry VIII, probably since he was now supreme head of the church and should take this sort of thing seriously. The boy bishop then indeed revived under Mary, but had basically lost its force and so slowly died out under Elizabeth from lack of interest. Eventually, the boy bishop celebration was replaced by the Lord Mayor's show in London. So, fine, there was pageantry to be had, but it was much less participatory. Everyone got to watch, essentially. The fun was controlled. Back to the Lord of Misrule, then, as an example of the kind of popular culture which attracted some elite disapproval, but actually survived, though did not exactly thrive through the period, and gives us some good examples of why popular culture changed over time. The month of May was an even more popular time than Christmas for the Lords of Misrule to appear in English villages up and down the land. Very popular and a tradition which, as I say, survived through the Tudors. There's a famous description in 1583 by a chap called Philip Stubbs which describes a Lord of Misrule in a slightly disapproving way. Anyway, this describes a Lord of Misrule who chooseth forth twenty, forty, threescore, or a hundred. Lusty good fellows like to himself to wait upon his lordly majesty and to guard his noble person. Then every one of these men be invested with his liveries of green, yellow, or some other light wanton colour. And as though they were not bawdy, or gaudy enough, I should say, they bedeck themselves with scarves, ribbons, and laces, hanged all over with gold rings, precious stones, and other jewels. This done, they tie about either leg, 20 or 40 bells with rich handkerchiefs in their hands and sometimes laid across over their shoulders and necks, bollowed for the most part of their pretty mopses and loving bells for bussing them in the dark. Stubbs then goes on to describe the ceremony of the young people sent out to make the May by going to the woods and collecting greenery while wearing garlands of flowers and then followed by the erection of a maypole and the building of summer halls and bowers and horribly enough there was dancing actually delightfully enough there was dancing for obviously as i am sure you will you will agree while dancing free form is merely an opportunity to demonstrate a general lack of rhythm and coolness dancing where you are told what to do is something of a triumph Country dancing, if you like to call it that, played a very critical role as something that crossed social and sexual boundaries, bringing together groups of people in both public and private spaces. It was cheap, it had a strong bias towards the young, who could have a hooli together, released to some degree from the repressions and social mores that governed sex and relationships. Dancing would be accompanied by pipe and drum, the pipes being often bagpipes, not the Highland pipes of modern Scottish fame but a simple pan-European version with a single drone pipe to make the accompanying buzz, a bag to supply the air pressure and a chanter pipe with finger holes to play the tune on. Dances were probably nice and simple, performed in circles, holding hands. So perfect for the maypole and all of that. Though there is also reference to much higher performance stuff. Solo jigs, that sort of thing. And that, my friend, allows me to introduce the Morris. Bah, the Morris, which has a distressingly dodgy reputation when it really ought to be celebrated and be much more popular even than it is. I intend to learn how to dance the Morris. You heard it here first, just after I'd run the cheese probably. Anyway, there were various views about the origins of Morris dancing and included in those theories appears to be the requisite amount of chaff. In the late 19th century, the whole of Europe began to get very, very interested in understanding cataloguing and explaining folk customs and they tended to want to find interesting and ancient origins so if they couldn't find any evidence of those interesting and ancient origins they did what any self-respecting podcaster does and they speculated wildly. So Morris is therefore supposed to have derived from some Moorish influence Morris Moorish hmm. possibly along with the armies of John of Gaunt and actually the Oxford English Dictionary has that as the origin of the word but it seems agreed that if the word does indeed mean Moorish, i.e. pertaining to the Moors as in Othello, the Moors of Spain and Africa, rather than of boggy areas, then it's back formation. People inventing a history, and there's nothing Moorish about Morris dancing at all. Nor does there seem to be any pagan influence, which is really annoying if you happen to be making a wicker man or watching Brit entice Edward Woodward, or whatever it might be. In fact, even more annoyingly, the origin of the Morris seems to be in the 15th century aristocratic courts, that the original Morris dancers were highly acrobatic, spectacular, professional players, there to wow the wealthy. They wore colourful, fancy costumes with pendant sleeves and bells. So, as an example, one of the dances that Morris dancers did in early modern times seems to have been a circle around a maiden, for whose favours the dancers then compete. I say maiden... There'd probably be a man in women's clothing in early modern times. The earliest written reference to the Morris is 1448. But by early 16th century, they were a common part of village festivals and they thrived all the way through to the 19th century when suddenly people decided it wasn't cool anymore. I think I've mentioned already the jolly famous Will Kemp, a Shakespeare player, the one who danced the Morris all the way from London to Norwich in 1600. Will caused a bit of a stir and people joined in along the way, including a Suffolk butcher, apparently, who did such a rubbish job and lasted such a short time that a local woman gave him a fair amount of disrespect. ''If I had begun to dance, I'd have held out one mile, but it would have cost my life,'' she declared. Obviously, the crowd said, ''Go on, then.'' So she hitched up her skirt, tied on some bells, and danced all the way beside Kemp to the next town. The reputation of butchers and their dancing skills has never recovered. Jerry tells us that from city to city is 400 miles, but from London to Norwich is about 118 miles, and dancing the Morris between the two is such a superbly fab idea that a quick search reveals that at least two others more recently have tried to do the same thing, one on this very year. Good on them.
1: Ready to pop the question?
0: Gosh, where was I then? Morris, May festivals and dancing. Yes, dancing. So, the popularity of the dance and its music might be reflected in the easy availability of players. One commentator moaned about this, as people will, and moaned about the quality of them at the same time in 1579. London is so full of unprofitable pipers and fiddlers that a man can no sooner enter a tavern but two or three casts of them hang at his heels to give him a dance before he depart. Which does sound tiresome, da humbug. Also, in June 1606, one alehouse keeper in Yorkshire got into trouble for holding Sunday dances that were attracting over a hundred young people to dance to the music of the piper and drummer. Dances could often take place in churchyards because these were not in those days covered with tombstones all over the shop and they were a good open area. So. The current trend towards flexible use of church spaces is not a new thing, then, which is good. May celebrations are a good example of the struggle between different viewpoints, probably between elite and popular, if you like, though hold that thought. As you may possibly perhaps have guessed from the quote above about the Lord of Misrule, our Stubbsy cannot be said to entirely approve of them. There is a clearly implied lemon in the quote. Mr. Stubbs, also referred to another triumph of these events, which was to drink significant quantities of alcohol, provided, mark you, by the church itself, and therefore raising a tidy sum for it. The church wardens, with the consent of the whole parish, provide half a score or twenty quarters of malt, which malt, being made into very strong ale or beer, is set to sale. This sounds great, but no, not according to Stubbsy it wasn't. All that gathering of May boughs he grumbles was just an excuse for the young whipper-snappers to slip away into the woods for a bit of nookie, which on an English morning at the end of April sounds a bit optimistic to me, but you lot may be made of sterner stuff. To be more understanding and professional about this, the point is that Protestant reformers like Stubbsy and particularly Puritans had a much greater worry about mixing up the sacred and profane. So it's not necessarily that they were against celebrations, it's just that dancing and flirty looks in the churchyard just didn't seem right to them. And all that drink and dancing and chaos in the context of visible growing poverty of unemployment, of the spectre of the many-headed monster of the poor and fear of riot, all that lack of control to such people was a bit worrying. Ronald Hutton also traced a general decline in the traditional church ale, A church ale being a parish hoolie with ale, and probably hence the name, and probably with dancing as well, that sort of thing. So, essentially, out of churchwarden accounts of 700 parishes, Hutton identified one surviving with certainty into the 17th century. This is, however, an analysis that has been challenged on the basis that this is 700 parishes out of 9,000, and that with the separation of the sacred and profane, churchwarden accounts after the Reformation, were no longer a good place to look for records of such events. And there are plenty of examples of the church ale surviving well enough. So, the village of Winterslow, for example, where the King's Ale, as it was called, carried on right through the century, but began then to become more intermittent as time went by. There's that example I've just given you from Yorkshire in 1606, where the celebration survived, but in that case, the ale was organised by the tavern rather than the church. The conclusion of this is probably that Hutton is overstating the case, but that the number of church ales and their frequency did reduce over time. Anyway, I started off with the ritual year and did not finish the job, and jumped from Christmas to May, Mayor Culper. But before I go backwards, May Day remained a shared celebration across all social groups. In June 1559, chronicler Henry Machin recorded the May celebrations for their new Queen Elizabeth. There was a May game, with a giant and drums and guns and nine worthies, with speeches and a goodly pageant with a queen and divers others with speeches. And then St George and the dragon, the Morris Dance, and after Robin Hood and Little John and Maid Marian and Friar Tuck, they had speeches round about London. Quite a few good traditions there then. But while this qualifies as shared culture... The example also leads to a demonstration that a more controlling spirit was at hand. So, for a while, London laid on a show, which is fine. But again, public shows were okay, but the corporation was now very wary of locals doing their own thing and therefore possibly getting out of hand. So, in 1575, an apprentice was sharply questioned about May Games, suspected to have been brought into London. He was interrogated sharply. What sport was about this town in the holy days? And the apprentice nervously replied that he knew of none but two or three shows in Southwark. Ta! That'll be Southwark for you then. Cah. Now maybe London was a rather extreme case and more than usually suspicious given the number of authorities that ruled it and could go and look for these events. But as you can see, there was pressure on these events everywhere. And there's no doubt their frequency was in decline. It was harder to escape the controlling hand of the town authorities or the parish worthies. OK, so back to the holy days about which our nervous apprentice was being quizzed. First Monday after Twelfth Night, then, would have been Plough Monday to celebrate the start of the ploughing season. The communal plough would have been kept in the church with a candle flickering above it on the rood. Some lads would then pull the plough around the village asking inevitably for a bit of dosh for the church and would plough up the ground in front of the doors of any scrooges who refused to pay. This tradition did not survive the Reformation. Candles had been sent to the great recycling bin in the sky by Henry VIII, Edward VI got rid of both rood screens and plough Monday by 1548. Next up was Candlemas. But in addition to a lot of candles, there was a lot of what reformers deemed to be superstition. If you count as superstition, the idea that witches dropped wax from the candles into the footsteps of anybody they hated, causing their feet to rot. Which, yeah, probably does qualify as superstition. Though apparently, we don't use the word superstition anymore as pejorative, and I guess imposing the views of today on the views of the past. Although hopefully, I'm okay on this one, since some contemporaries thought of it as superstitious too. Either way, Candlemas, gone, 1548. Then St Valentine's Day, pretty popular in the Paston letters, as it happens, but more generally a low-key, occasional sort of thing. Valentine was supposed to have been an early Christian who helped persecuted Christians, I believe. A story added much later was that he'd sent the very first Valentine's message to his jailer's daughter, One version of the surviving tradition then was that you chose names from a hat as to who was your valentine and that person then brought you a gift, which is nice. Now as you dipped into the hat, I don't think you thought of a romantic attachment but hope you picked the boss's name on the assumption you'd get a higher grade prezi. Anyway, no one bothered to ban that one, which brings us then to Lent and Holy Week. Before Lent, all the remaining goodies in the house needed to be eaten up, until there was plenty of shrove-time fun before everyone began to be dour for Lent. Obviously, to many of us English, this is Pancake Day, which is as thoroughgoing a secularisation as you can care to think of. First mention of Pancake Day, by the way, is given in the Oxford English Dictionary as 1700. Now, I have to say that as well as nice eaty traditions, there used to be, back in the day, some reasonably nasty animal-related ones. The early moderns were sadly imperial in their attitude to animals. Officially, animals had no soul and people had dominion over them and all that. I have no doubt that in the day-to-day relationship between human and animal, since we relied so much on them for our survival, there was a vast storehouse of love, companionship and encouragement on the plough and wherever, even if the things do woof at unfortunate moments outside the shed. Of course, such moments don't survive so well, And what does survive are the records of many brutal traditions. Some of these took place on Shrove Tuesday. And you know what? I'm never going to cover those things on the History of England. I'm going to give myself a break on that particular score. Without going into detail, though, you should not forget them because it does give a distressing window on the contemporary soul, which could be hard-hearted by the vagaries of daily life. Easter itself, then, was a treasure house of elaborate ceremonies, such as the washing of the altars and creeping to the cross. And although Easter, of course, remained as the most important of occasions for the Reformed Church too, most of those ceremonies did not survive. Some of the traditions that were not actively banned around Easter did keep going for a while until they faded out for lack of interest, so cutting greenery and bringing it into the house on Palm Sunday, for example, lasted until the 18th century. Easter Monday remained a favourite time for sports and fairs too, which, of course, the Premier League preserves today. St George's Day, 23rd of April, was chopped by Edward VI too, a celebration that has been revived in a secular sense more recently, which is good. Cry England, Harry, St George, all that sort of thing. Always good to fly the flag in an inclusive sort of way. And now I am finally back in order because we've done Maydave before. So then skip on to Corpus Christi, which was in June. And this was an absolutely mega celebration and an event in towns in particular. Although I think that A, we have discussed this way back because I'm getting that deja vu feeling all over again. And B, I'm aware this podcast is becoming a little bit listy. And C, Corpus Christi had been proclaimed in 1317 by Pope John XXII in order to remind Christians of the holy nature of the Eucharist. Now, as far as the Protestants were concerned, the Eucharist was just the bread and the wine and done in remembrance of him. So we're back to the transubstantiation debate. And so Corpus Christi was the first up against the wall come the Reformation. However, Corpus Christi does allow us to discuss plays, because that is one of the things that happened pre-Reformation in some towns at the time of Corpus Christi. Although the main event, of course, was the big procession with each guild preparing their float and all that and processing through the the town. But in some places, plays were very much not part of Corpus Christi. London, for example, would have none of it. But Coventry, for example, did. Coventry, it turns out, was a bit of a happening place in the 15th century. No time of a ghost town in the 15th century. Although, since you mention it, The later 16th century will be economically very hard on the place and actually you'll see some very substantial population falls. But look, we didn't come here to talk about Coventry. But anyway, in its prime, Coventry rocked. It still rocks now, of course. Mm, Move on. Anyway, famously, York also did a cycle of 52 plays. which should have taken 21 hours end-to-end to perform, apparently. By 1570, these mystery plays and the play cycles were all gone. Nothing more than a memory. And yet, here we are at the very start of the golden age of English drama, which will produce the bloody bard, no less. So, what's going on? If the Reformation killed the cock-robin of drama, how did said cock-robin magically turn back into a phoenix? Well, in the best tradition of cliffhangers, and to escape my quite appalling metaphor, tune in in two weeks' time to see if cock-robin was shot at all, and to hear some small coverage of plays in the late 16th century, and we'll continue our walk through entertainments in early modern England, but mainly their part in the Reformation of manners, which means we'll finally hear what good wives Agnes Haycroft and Friedswide Hodgson had to say to each other and to the Winchester bawdy courts.